political science students present In the Shadow of the Kremlin, a podcast covering state building, foreign policy, political economy, and civil society in the wake of the USSR. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast for the day. Um, I'm Arna Richenberg. I'm a junior studying history and political science from Kansas City, Missouri. Hello, we are back, back again, and I am Tyler Brosford, studying political science and history at Kansas State. Hi, I'm Alex Parton, and I am studying history and political science at K-State as well. Yeah, and today our topic is, is going to be discussing Eurasia, but specifically the uh, Eurasian Economic Union and some of the implications that ha- that has on um, Russia and the world. Well, hello, everybody. Before we get started with the, our main discussion for today, I just want to let everybody know that we are calling in remotely, so our audio might sound a little bit different than usual, but we really appreciate you know you all bearing with us as we're going through this. We had a snow day today, so we're all at different locations, but yeah. Yeah, cool. So I thought I would kick off our discussion about Eurasia today by... Um, giving a bit of background on a theory that has kind of inspired this idea of Eurasianism and how it has spread throughout Russia and kind of made its way into Russian politics and their, I guess, Putin's mission for expansion. Um, So the idea of Eurasia first came from a British geographer and politician whose name was Halford Mackinder, and he originally presented this idea of Eurasia in a 1904 speech, and, you know, he continued to develop it throughout his life and ended up publishing further writings and works on the heartland theory, and people today still regard him as a prophet. He made a lot of predictions about things that would happen in the future, and he ended up predicting quite a bit of um, stuff correctly, um, especially an alliance between Russia and China. He said, an alliance between Russia and China would create an unconquerable fortress. And we are seeing this in today's news with the BRI, um, the development of the Belt and Road Initiative um, in China and throughout Eurasia. Um, so that's kind of cool that he was able to predict a lot of really fascinating things that have become such prevalent topics in politics today. Um, he also emphasized the idea that geography has a correlation with world history, and he really emphasized the importance of having sea power and land power to kind of become um, a dominating force in the world. So to kind of dive deeper into it, he really focused on this idea of a pivot area. And so what a pivot area is, is a regional um, having control over a pivot area um, determines that country's supremacy over world politics. And so he kind of saw it as the center of force. Um, And so you have the pivot area and then around the pivot area, you have the inner crescent and then you have the outer crescent. And he said, having that pivot area be impenetrable by sea and land attacks um, is a really key component of having control, regional political control over that area by a given country. Um, And that ties back to sea and land power being very important in his heartland theory. Um, And so I have a quote from Mackinder here, and he says, who rules East Europe commands the heartland, who rules the heartland commands the world island, and who rules the world island commands the world. 
So that is kind of the main theme of this idea of Eurasia and the pivot area that kind of encapsulates, you know, what that all means. And so one thing that I was really curious about when doing research was, you know, does America, are they aware of this pivot area? What are their thoughts on Eurasia? And in an article that I read called Revisiting the Pivot, the Influence of Heartland Theory and Great Power Politics by Margaret Scott and Weston Lee Alkinet, they said that the first Bush administration noted that for most of the century, the United States has deemed it a vital interest to prevent any power or group of powers from dominating the Eurasian landmass. So that kind of showed me that they do have interest in it. And it would be interesting to for me to know, you know, how they feel about the Belt and Road Initiative and all of the expansions that Russia is trying to make now. Um, in reference to Eurasia and having control over the Eurasian landmass, as they say, and the pivot area. Um, and so in class, we've also talked about Alexander Dugan, and he supports Mackinder's Heartland Theory. And a lot of people have said that Dugan is like Putin's brain. And so that's really important because we can see that Russian foreign policy is acting to prevent outsiders from gaining any sort of influence in this pivot area or in Central Asian states particularly. And a quote from Dugan here says that nation states cannot independently establish, secure, and keep real sovereignty. So he thinks it's really important for nation states to have a multipolar alliance between all powers. He says all powers, states, countries, civilizations, all fighting for their independence. So I just thought that was super interesting. And that's kind of my spiel on the heartland theory and how that kind of ties into Eurasia and Russia's motives with having, I guess, their control to have power over the pivot area. Yeah, I was going to talk about this uh, later, um, but I think you bring up a really great point about, you know, winning both the land and the sea and how much power that, you know, gives a country. And I think we see this idea of Eurasia push a lot of, um, you know, Russian foreign policy and mm -hmm. the things we seek. I think we can look at, you know, the annexation of Crimea as a really, really big, you know, Russia is a big country and has a lot of water, but it's water that is often frozen. And that poses a lot of problems. You can only, I mean, if you think of like, Siberia I mean it's always cold there so like it, waiting for a good season is like nearly impossible right. but you know somewhere in the Mediterranean the Crimea you know the Black Sea you're able to have that more you're more open season for sea trade and I think that is kind of what we talked about like winning land and sea is so important and I also think it, it drives their foreign policy and some of their um territorial conflicts that they have yeah exactly That's yeah really I definitely great. agree yeah. That is a great insight. Yeah, so we can move on to another topic now, Tyler. Did you want to go ahead? Yeah, I definitely think the Heartland Theory, the pivot area, and the concept of Eurasianism that you mentioned with Alexander Dugan is a great fundamental understanding to the creation and formation of the European, or no, not European, wrong one, the Eurasian Union. <laughs> and so the Eurasian Union is the Eurasian Economic Union, and it's an inter it's an international organization for regional economic uh, interrogation. 
and it has international legal personality and is established by the Treaty on the Eurasian Economic Union. And the EAEU provides movement of goods, services, capital, and labor, and it pursues treaty of international agreement within the union and the member states consist of the republic of armenia republic of belarus republic of kazakhstan the tiger kyrgyz republic i'm so sorry and the russian federation and this union is being created to upgrade and raise the competitiveness of uh, national economies to promote a stable development in order to build connection between yeah. member countries it's, I think it's that basically language, the european union yeah i think that the language they use like in that where it says a union is being created to comprehensively upgrade raise the competitiveness and cooperation between national economies economies i think it's just interesting because you look at the countries those are non-democratic countries and so obviously they leave that part out of that but i think it's an interesting thing in the language has it between national economies but specifically non-democratic countries and competing with the west to kind of i feel like to like show that like you don't have to be a democracy to be strong and i think that's kind of what the eaeu is like kind of supposed to, like kind of like a facade to that oh yeah it's definitely a facade for that because it's like we're gonna do what you're doing but we're gonna do it our way and I think it's um, on the basis of kind of like the pivot area and controlling the lands and working with these, the near abroad, as they call it, I guess, and just working towards. Yeah. yeah, I think of it like very similar to like the Warsaw Pact and mm. the creation of the Warsaw Pact in response yeah. to the creation of like NATO and like League of. Like, I don't know if it was the League of Nations or NATO, but it was in response to like a, a Western allegiance. And so I feel like this is kind of the same way. There's the European Union. So now they're like, oh, we need to have something as well. And that's where they came and decided to do the EAU. Yeah, that's a really yeah, good I point. Think, yeah, sorry. And, no, you're fine. I think that also it also ties into the Heartland Theory too, because they're they're motivated to get land power they're motivated to get sea power and then they're motivated to also become like a really dominant world economy and so i think if you have such a strong um foothold in all three of those areas that would make you kind of inconquerable and i think that's definitely russia's goal is to become you know, that's Putin's greater mission is to become a world power. And so not only having land power and sea power, but dominating the world economy too would be such a big achievement in that goal that they have to become this great world power and to dominate Eurasia. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think this is one of the many ways that Russia is trying to build connections um, internationally and also by promoting internal connections. I have a quote here from Vladimir Kalinsky, as he says, an important element of a region is its cohesion, the connections of its territory. The Russian Federation is much less connected than each of its parts. And I think that is very true. Uh, Russia is obviously super big, 
and has like hundreds of ethnicities over like 11 time zones. And I think it's really trying to grasp at any connection, like Russian ethnicity, Russian language, and also the formation of the Eurasian Union to build connections that it really, really needs. Like all the national, like national ideas and national, like the nationalistic nationalism problems they face in um, Russia, I feel like this is trying another way that they're trying to kind of bridge that gap and have everyone see themselves as whole versus their different ethnic uh, identities. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, just a trend that we have seen, it feels like throughout everything that we've talked about in class so far, even is how I feel like their inability to unify under one national identity or something like that has really held them back. Oh, yeah, I I agree. I mean, that's some of the biggest problems is just trying you know get everybody on the same page when it comes to russia and not not just like everybody in the world but like russian citizens specifically trying to get everybody on the same page and i think that's where like propaganda comes in that's why we see so much of it there Mm -hmm. and so much of it that's not like subtle i think every country has some sort of propaganda but in subtle ways in russia i mean they're outwardly you know really trying to consolidate, you know, everybody in Russia, the different ethnic groups, the different religions, different languages into a common cause. And I think they're kind of struggling with it, especially now with like the whole um, Ukrainian crisis or the war in Ukraine. I mean, it shows, I mean, the propaganda we see with that and the issues and protests that we see in Russia as well Mm -hmm. is, I think it really shows that. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I don't really understand Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I, I don't really understand how they. I feel like there's a lot of moving parts that Russia is trying to draw connections with, and where it's with the Russian Orthodox Church, or if it's with like um, I can't remember the word r- r- Russianism. I can't remember the Russian word for it, but we've discussed. Um, and I don't really understand like their goal. I guess it's because I feel like. Are you Eurasian? Are you Russian? Are you trying to like create a religious unity? I don't really understand what their goal really is. Yeah, and like I know we talked about in class the other day, where um, Professor Sim- or Doctor Sim- oh my God, Doctor Vera was talking to us and talking about how like the Russian government does a great job of like thinking, making the world think that Russia is all Orthodox. They all go to church. They all strongly believe in like the Orthodox Church, but in reality, she's like, that is not the case at all. <laughs> right. And it's just like, a perfect way of like how Russia, you know, does this and is trying so hard to consolidate everybody. Like whether they have it, whether like the Russian people feel like they're all together. I mean, there's they're they're slowly starting to make the Western world feel like they have some more consolidation than they think. I mean, I think for me. I mean, I'm a little naive and a little ignorant when it comes to some of this stuff, but like, I thought that like most Russians were Orthodox and religious because that's just what I see everywhere. And so I think it was just an interesting conversation about, you know, nationalism and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think one thing that's also really interesting, like talking about how it the invasion of Ukraine has created like more division within Russia, something that's really 
I think kind of ironic, too, is how it has created such division within Russia, but it has kind of unified, like, the rest of the world against Russia in this invasion. So it almost did the exact opposite of what Russia's goal has been this whole time, you know, to unify their country against the West and to weaken the West. But this has really not only unified the West, but the rest of the world against Russia because nobody sees any justification and they see it as an in, a complete like infringement upon sovereignty and so that's something that's kind of interesting to me too yeah I think it's like kind of going back to the idea of like Eurasia I think it's falling apart mm. as we speak I think a lot of the countries that I think Russia probably has been friendly with in the past are kind of showing them that this whole you know them invading Ukraine is not what they wanted i mean china was a surprising one we saw china really just say like we don't agree with this we saw i think kazakhstan it was it was one of the members yeah, kazakhstan. yeah mm-hmm. kazakhstan was like we don't we don't agree with this and like i think that's that that was that was the one that was surprising because that's a country that's been outwardly allies with you know the russian government and to see that i think you know, with everything that's going on in Ukraine, I think their idea of Eurasia and their prospect of Eurasia and the want that they have is coming to an end. Not that not that they don't want it, but the idea and how it might happen is slowly decreasing. Yeah, and I think that China's opposition to um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine kind of raises the question of, like, is that because they want... Because um, I think this is kind of Russia... I guess, like, losing their foothold or their opportunity to have sole power over Eurasia. And so that kind of raises the question of, like, well, now is this China's way of moving in? And then are they going to get support from other countries? Because they're going to say, well, we didn't support Russia when they invaded Ukraine. That's not what we're about. We want Eurasia to be united, you know? So that's, I don't know, that kind of makes me question China's motives with opposing Russia. Yeah, definitely questioning China in this, as always, I guess. Um, (laughs) But I think Russia is using Eurasianism as a way to build a bridge with China, Mm. while also trying to control the in-between regions. Because you can't, like... I don't know. I feel like it's a stretch to be like, we're Eurasian, but then also like push for Slavism and like Russianism in by trying to relate to like Central Asia, the Caucasus and China. I feel like, I feel like that's a weird like connection. Well, I always thought it was weird too, is like, you can't have Eurasia without China. I mean, China is a huge landmass of a country. Mm. And, but it's like, if, so let's, let's say, you know, Russia and, you know, China, they're on the same side, which I mean, most times they kind of are, but except right now, but before, you know, Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, I think, I just don't see how it would turn out. I feel like it would turn out very badly. You have two very powerful and hungry countries, like trying to create a whole union possibly like when like if other countries were to join who has power over that country is it russia is it china who has power over russia and china like is there one that just takes the lead on everything i don't know i just feel like 
there's a lot that's a lot of what ifs that's a very deep idea i don't think there'd ever be a thing where russia and china work that closely together Mm. but i just think i mean eurasia you think of asia most of asia is china and russia yeah i would say the eurasian union is definitely like a stepping stone yeah in uh russia getting territory and influence in china to build their uh rail rail and road system mm-hmm. and i think using this um uh super national structure will help them to like step over other people to be like oh well blah 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 it's for the union and like work around some things cut some corners i feel yeah yeah all yeah. right well do we want to move on to marta's topic yeah. now can do that mine i feel like my section is definitely something that kind of wraps kind of our thoughts together um Mm -hmm. why is my hold on okay yep there we go um so we kind of just talk about like some of the implications of eurasia like what does that mean for russia what does that mean for the rest of the world what like what are the implications of it um i think something that has always been you know in the talks and you know with scholars and different people who study Russia is like the lack of money. Like how, like that, that's what like always baffles me is like, how are you going to like push for Asia, try to take over, like possibly take over these countries or have a strong foothold at least in these countries, but be able to, but not be able to even take care of your own citizens. Like that just like, it just seems like a disaster in and of itself that like, you're gonna go for other countries but you can't take care of your own i think some of the stats that i got from the wilson center um this article that i found that there was there was a huge they were having a huge economic growth russia was and it went down in 2008 kind of with the rest of the world with the like you know the great recession in the united states and stuff like that but it was like prior to that it was the first time that it was very very similar to china like economically mm-hmm. and so i think it's just like you know, it was great, great. It had, it was, it was growing. It was a growing economy. And so I think this is where, you know, where people are like, yes, Eurasia is what we want to do. We can do it. But then, you know, the recession, the great recession of 2008, we saw, I mean, a huge, huge, huge downfall in their economics and especially, I mean, especially now with their sanctions, but I feel like it's not, I don't want to say it's not very Russian because I feel like that's not the right term to use, but it's just not them to be like oh we're gonna fight for eurasia but now we're not anymore so i think they're just still trying to push this idea of eurasia so it one makes them look strong to possibly consolidate them but i just don't think thinking about the money but i stay or at least be able like a healthy like they can healthily sustain, you know, that type of um, thing. So it's kind of like, and especially now the sanctions, like I just kind of like, like, do you guys think it would be worth it? I mean, with the economic downfall out there, I mean, having, especially now with the sanctions um, because of the war in Ukraine, like how, how, how do you guys feel? Do you feel like, you know, it's worth it? They could do it because they could sustain it. Like, what, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I don't know. I mean, my mind always goes to, like, we put, a lot of places put sanctions on them after Crimea, and 
I mean, that didn't stop him from, like, going after Ukraine or anything. So I don't know that um, the sanctions themselves will do that much in, I guess, like, weakening their drive to um, be this great world power and uh, a great Eurasian power. And... um, But obviously it will weaken their economy because we've mentioned so many times in class, like they can't support themselves, like you were saying, Marta, and they're not going to be able to to support Ukraine now either, you know, like, like you were saying, how can you take all of this on when you are struggling so much in your own country? So it's, it's a really interesting thing. I, I mean, obviously from a Western perspective, we're going to say, no, it's not worth it, but it's. It's worth it to them, you know. So I don't. Yeah, I don't like think the idea that... of possibly finally having a consolidation among like Russians. Exactly. I think definitely something that they'd rather you know lose their money over because it's something that they've struggled with for I mean centuries. Not yeah. even just with this regime, but just other regimes as well. Yeah. Yeah, I feel really bad because these sanctions aren't affecting the Russian oligarchs. It's not really affecting Putin. It's affecting the regular people. Yeah. Which obviously is the tactic to push. Like, if you're affecting the people, obviously that's going to hopefully, like, domino effect into them pressuring their government. But at the moment, it's like people have lost, like, their life savings. Like, they don't have any sugar. They can't get, like, grain products. And... Like you've seen all the stuff where they're like threatening to cut the the internet if they call this this war a situ- they have to call it a situation or they'll face prison. So with the sanctions, I don't know. It, it's it's I think it's hurting more than it is stopping the situation. Yeah, I that's what I've always like thought about. And this has to do with another our, our last module, but kind of with the power vertical and like how Russia has to balance the constant needs of the people and of the elite. And I'm starting to wonder if this, like, if these sanctions are not not necessarily going to push Russia to, like, oh, we're losing money, we need to, like, stop. But it's more going to be like, oh, oh, crap, we're going to have to start, you know, picking a side on the balancing act. Do we side with, you know, the Russian citizens that are being severely impacted by these sanctions or... Are we just gonna let it chill until it starts affecting the people who actually have power, like the like the oligarchs and the elite? Mm-hmm. And so I think that'd be interesting. I I wonder if those sanctions, if they ever did play a part, if it was more so about the balancing act than actually like caring for its citizens. Yeah, I agree. And I know with the sanctions, it's really hurting the everyday people. But I know that China, they're doing a lot of investing in African countries. And they're kind of putting them into like a debt that they have to repay because they're like, oh, we'll do all this stuff for you. You just pay us back when we're like done with it. And then now they're indebted. And I think this can cause a similar situation with who Russia is allying with Mm. and who is supporting them or not supporting either side at the moment because China is not not supporting, but they're not supporting. Um, So I think that is also something to think about yeah that's interesting but kind of off again off i'm going to switch off of you know sanctions and money and more about like kind of like territorial conflicts um gosh i'm not going to pronounce the author that we've been reading for a while 
Lorella Roll. That person. Yeah. All respect, all respect to her. But uh, we talked a lot about the ter- territorial conflicts, specifically like a lot of those like bordering cities with Russia and Eurasia, the type of the type of thing we talked about, like peopling rather yeah. than like bordering. There's like a lot of like cities and not cities, but like villages that are like on the border of Russia and China that like are kind of split. That like Russia says is theirs, but also China says there it's theirs, which I think is weird because I feel like that would be a bigger issue than it actually is. Like I think they both are just like, what's well, a tiny village? Like we really don't care. But I don't know. I think it's just like interesting to talk about um, you know territorial conflicts and you know, with China, with, you know, Eastern Europe and how that's going to affect. I know we've talked a lot about, like, geopolitics and, like, is Russia going to stop after Ukraine? Does it want more? Does it, it's, if they get Ukraine, are they going to stop? Are they going to keep going? Are they going to go to the mountain borders and stuff like that? So I'd be curious to hear, like, your thoughts are, like, on the implications of Eurasia on, like, specifically, like, territorial conflicts. I just don't think yeah, borders matter to Sorry, Russia. I just, I just don't think borders matter to Russia. Like, we've seen with Ukraine, like, they, they really see Ukraine as, like, the map that Dr. Vera showed us in class with, like, the little yellow island in the middle, you know? And they see that as the true Ukraine, and then all the surrounding area is Russia's. Even though it was given away, it's still theirs, you know? So I think they just... I just don't think borders really matter. I think they're going to be able to find a way to spin it whatever way they want, you know, in order to take those, take that land and make it theirs. Yeah, yeah Russia doesn't care. Tyler, you go. Yeah, Russia does not care. And when it comes to, like, territorial disputes with, like, China, India, between, like, Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan, and a lot of the Northern Caucasus uh, states, Israel and Palestine, it's like, I don't really, just personally, it's like, how much of strategic influence or like resources can you possibly get from these very small regions that is worth the money spent and the lives lost and the people um, displaced? Like at what point is it just like, okay, like, this is not worth it. Gosh, yeah. I mean, I wish they would decide that, like, now, because, like, that'd be nice if they got out of Ukraine. But kind of talking about, like, I don't think, like, Russia cares about borders. I would argue that they do. I think, obviously, they'd like to have the territory, but I think they also know that you can't just only take part of Poland. Hmm. So sorry, everyone. Um, it cut us off. It said we've been talking for too long, so shut up. <laughs> so it cut us off, but I'm back. Um, so we're just going to quickly wrap up. But kind of what I was just finishing saying before it rudely interrupted what I was saying. I was talking about how I, I don't think Russia does. I think it respects borders more than we think. I don't think Russia is going to. I think obviously they like the territory, but they're not going to only take over half of Poland Mm -hmm. just to have like those mountains and that range and stuff like that. I think they would either take it all or take none of it. I think because like for like legitimacy reasons, you'd have to, I mean, big reasons why they've been going after Kiev and um, Ukraine is because you got to get the capital if you're going to take the whole country. Right. You're going to take part of it. You got to take the capital because you're always going to have that fight for sovereignty. 
Um, but yeah, that was just kind of like my touching thoughts on that. But yeah, I think we can probably just move in, you know, if to our final remarks and, you know, finish the episode. So okay, Tyler, perfect. if you want to start us off. Yeah, perfect. Um, kind of to like wrap it up on like a end note, I guess. Um, I think Russia is trying to use everything that it can do to create like justify what they're doing for themselves and work with people who are like-minded with them. And I found some articles about in the diplomat with Kyrgyzstan. Um, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Kazakhstan, they were disagreeing with them and it was a big to do with the Russia Ukraine conflict. Um, and they said, is this going to threaten the European or the Eurasian Union and how these uh, sanctions are affecting everyone? And like we said already, that's what is happening right now as of like this morning. Yeah, no, I, I'm like right with you. I think this idea of Eurasia is such an interesting topic and just how many implications and like reasonings behind it it has i mean for many you know also power grabs try and you know increase their account oh my gosh economy but by getting like more sea routes more land routes um more allies to work with more resources to gather for their people um but also a lot of it is like i kind of said earlier power grab they just you know they want to be powerful compared to the west and yeah, so I guess just kind of my remarks. I think it's, you know, Eurasia is a really interesting concept, and I think it drives a lot of stuff and just like domestic issues, but also their foreign policy. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you're right. It's a very broad idea, and it's a very complex idea, too. And I think it's really interesting how we are able to analyze that idea of Eurasia now, like not only throughout history, but with what's going on with Ukraine, I think understanding the ideas of Eurasia and that that might be Russia's motivation in their invasions, I think that gives us a better understanding of like, well, why are they doing this, you know? And um, I think it's a very, obviously it's a very tragic thing that's going on, but it's also been a good opportunity for us in this class to think of it from a non-Western perspective and to kind of really um, sympathize more with the regular people of Russia, like you were saying, Tyler. And so, yeah, it's it's a very fascinating topic to learn about. And, um, you know, going back to the heartland theory and everything, it's crazy how that still ties in even today and how that's still relevant today. And so, yeah, but this has been a really good discussion about Eurasia, I think. And thanks for listening. Yes, everyone. thank you. Yes, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to us <laughs> again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, we will see you in the next podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.